Take your Bible and turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 1242. <clears throat> I'm sure this has never happened to you, but occasionally Rebecca and I will be talking, we'll be discussing a certain topic, and then something makes us think about another topic, and then after we chase that tangent for a while, we end up saying, what were we talking about? I'm sure that's never happened to any of y'all. Um, the Apostle Paul does that on occasion in his letters. Um, something he writes leads him to think about something else, and then he chases a tangent. Our text this morning is a good example of that. If you found your way to Ephesians 3, look at verse 1 and notice what he says. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now hold, hold that thought in your mind and jump down to verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father and so on. <clears throat> Paul cuts himself off in mid-sentence in verse 1. Something that he says in verse 1 triggers him to take a detour, um, to, to, to follow this train of thought where it goes. And so you could think of verses 2 through 13 as basically a God-inspired side note. I emphasize God-inspired because God was superintending this. Everything that Paul says here, God wanted him to say. Um, sometimes very profound things can be said in side notes. And this is no exception. In our text today, we're going to hear Paul outline one of the most central, defining, animating components of his life and ministry. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at some of the reasons why Jesus died and rose again. Most of our focus has been on what Jesus' death and relationship did in terms of our relationship to God. So we saw that He died and rose again to reconcile us to God, to be our substitute and example, and to break the power of canceled sin. And today, we're going to see what Jesus' death and resurrection means for our relationship with other redeemed sinners, with, with one another. And so let's read together here in Ephesians 3, and we're going to begin in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly, when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the, gifts, the gift of God's grace, which was given, given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray together. Lord, um, I pray as we 
saying earlier that you would indeed open our eyes and help us to see, open our ears, help us to listen to what you would have to say to us through your word. God, I feel a strong um, weight right now that I have been given the same stewardship as Paul to, to be a steward um, of the mystery of Christ and a servant of Christ. And you have said in your word that what is required of a steward is to be found faithful. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me to faithfully steward this word, um, the gospel. Help me to proclaim it clearly and in a way that would um, convict us and would um, impress upon us our, our need for your grace and also your power to enable us to do what you've commanded us to do. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I want you to see with me this morning that according to His grace, God entrusted two gifts to Paul. Notice what he says in verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now jump down to verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So two references to things being gifted or entrusted to Paul by God's grace. So we could say two gifts that God has entrusted to Paul by His grace. We're going to examine those two gifts and then see how they relate to us. The first gift that God entrusted to Paul was what he calls the mystery. So we're going to look at the mystery entrusted to Paul. Three times in this passage he uses the word mystery to describe this gift of which God made him a steward. And Paul uses the word mystery many, many other times in his other letters and even elsewhere here in Ephesians to describe the gospel. Now before we can define what this mystery is, we need to clarify what Paul means when he uses the word mystery. Because we tend to use the word mystery a little bit differently than Paul was using it. We often use the word mystery to refer to something that cannot be fully known. If something is mysterious, then it is not entirely knowable, or at least not entirely known yet. When I was growing up, we, me and my brother used to watch this show, Unsolved Mysteries. Y'all ever watched that on TV back in the day? Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries. Um, so that's the way we typically think of mysteries. Things that haven't been solved, things that haven't been found or discovered or haven't been known yet. Paul uses the word mystery in a slightly different way. Here's a, here's a basic definition of mystery as Paul uses it. Mystery in Paul's language means something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed. That, that last part is key because what we, what we might be tempted to think of is hidden, but Paul's emphasis is on, yes, it was hidden, but it has now been revealed. Look, for example, at what he says in verse 3. He says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Now verse 4, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the mystery was not made known in previous generations, but it has now been revealed. That's consistent with 
how Paul uses the word mystery elsewhere. When he speaks of mystery, he's describing something that was previously concealed, but God has now revealed it. So if that's what he means by the word mystery, then what is the mystery? In other words, what's the content of the mystery? What is it that was previously hidden but has now been revealed? He explains it very clearly in verse 6. This mystery is, so here's what the mystery is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, if you go and read the Old Testament, what you'll find is there is this expectation in the Old Testament that God's blessing would extend to the Gentiles, to people outside Israel. God told Abraham, for example, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He promised Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. And that theme of God's blessing extending from Abraham's descendants to the nations, that theme flows throughout the Old Testament. What God revealed through Paul is that the Gentiles, as he puts it, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, it's not that you have first-class citizens in God's, God's kingdom, the Israelites, and then the Gentiles come in later as these kind of second-class who get the leftovers. The mystery is that because Jewish believers and Gentile believers are both united to Christ... They are on the same footing in the church. They both have the same standing before God, and they are both heirs to the same promises in Christ. Paul drills that home by using three phrases. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So whether you're a Jewish believer or a Gentile believer, that's what you are. It's not that there are some people who are kind of sons of God, and then there are some servants who also get to live in the house, but that whether you're Jewish or Gentile, if you trust in Jesus, you are a child of God with all the privileges pertaining thereto. So here's, I want to try to kind of boil all that down into what's a very simple way we can say this. Here's my best effort. The mystery is that God designed the church to reflect a diverse, Christ-centered unity. All those words are important. Diverse, Christ-centered unity. By uniting different kinds of people, so diverse kinds of people to the same Redeemer, God was also uniting them to one another. I want you to glance back at what Paul's just said in chapter 2, specifically in verses 14 through 16. Look back at Ephesians 2, 14. For He, Christ Himself, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul's speaking there about Jewish believers Gentile believers, he says that through the cross, God broke down the dividing wall of hostility. 
He united both of us, reconciled both of us to God in one body, not two. There's not a, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There's one church, as Paul's later going to say in chapter 4, all reconciled to God in one body through the cross, thereby God has killed the hostility. So on the cross, Christ made a way for the hostility between God and sinners to be set aside, but He was also killing the hostility. I love that phrase. It's a very hostile way of speaking about hostility. He killed the hostility between one redeemed sinner and another. I wanted us to glance back at chapter 2 precisely because of Paul's use of the word hostility. He says that Christ is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then he says in verse 16 that through the cross God killed the hostility between different kinds of redeemed sinners. Now you say there's still a lot of hostility in the world, isn't there, right? Um, we're reminded of that all too often. In recent months there have been bombings at churches, shootings at mosques and synagogues. Many of us are alarmed at the ongoing threat of Islamic extremism. There seems to be a growing tide of white extremism as well. All of this is totally contrary to the gospel. It's not new. There have been people for a long time who've done awful things in the name of Jesus. But this is totally contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel reminds us that through the cross, God has killed the hostility between different kinds of redeemed sinners. Now, I want to be clear. This is not kumbaya unity. This is not, let's just all hold hands. Why can't we all get along and dance in the river of love? This is not a kind of unity that says all religions are headed to the same place. It's not the kind of unity that says we're all worshiping the same God. This is a unity that's centered on Christ. So the phrase Christ-centered is really important because this is a unity that says to every, every fellow believer, you are my brother or sister no matter how alike or unalike we are. And it says to every unbeliever, you could possibly be my brother or sister one day, so I'm going to love you and invite you to Jesus no matter how alike or unalike we are. And I'm not going to harbor any hostility toward you. I'm going to, as best I can, live a Christ-like life before you, speak the gospel to you, invite you to trust in Jesus. And if you refuse that, then God will deal with you in eternity. But I'm not going to deal with that right now. The way I'm going to deal with it is by loving you and speaking the gospel to you. What I want you to see is that this diverse Christ-centered unity was not something that just happened. It's not something that was accidental in the early church. It's not like God sent Jesus to take on flesh and to live a sinless life and to die on the cross, and then God raised Him from the dead, and then God poured out His Spirit at Pentecost, and then God was surprised. Huh! Wow! I, I'd never expected all these different kind of people to trust in Jesus. No, this was God's plan. This diverse, Christ-centered unity in the church is something God planned. Paul says that very thing in verse 11. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it was planned in eternity. It was realized in Christ Jesus. Then God commanded the church to proclaim and 
to pursue it. That's why it's important not only for us to see and to find the mystery that God entrusted to Paul, but also to examine the ministry that God entrusted to Paul. So God entrusted a mystery to him, and then he entrusted a ministry to him. He says that very thing in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. So Paul says, I was given a mystery. God made it known to me as a stewardship by His grace. And then He entrusted a ministry to me. And the ministry was to be a minister of this gospel. In other words, Paul's ministry was to proclaim and to pursue the mystery that God had revealed to him. He says in verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. I was reading this this week and I went back and looked at Acts 9 where you read about Paul's conversion. And what's striking is Paul's conversion to Christ and his commission for Christ were from the very beginning intertwined gifts of God's grace. Shortly after his conversion, God said of Paul, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So not only did God convert Paul and commission him, but He commissioned him specifically to proclaim the gospel in such a way that would display God's purpose of including the Gentiles as fellow heirs, co-members, and co-partakers with Jewish believers. God did not tell Paul only to just go out and just whoever you encounter, preach the gospel. He said, Paul, I am commissioning you specifically to seek out, yes, children of Israel, but also the Gentiles. God told him to pursue that. And God made it clear from the beginning that Paul would suffer for the sake of Christ's name and for the sake of his ministry. That's what, Paul, that's what God told Ananias. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So proclaiming this mystery of Jews and Gentiles united in Christ was going to cost Paul. And that brings us back to verse 1 the verse that triggered this whole God-inspired side note in verses 2 through 13. It would be really easy to just skim over verse 1, but I want us just to really take careful notice of how Paul describes himself in Ephesians 3, 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now Paul's there. He's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He's technically a prisoner of the emperor Nero. Nero's the one who put him in jail. But he was a prisoner for Christ Jesus, meaning on behalf of Christ, for the sake of Christ. This letter, the letter to the Ephesians, was one of several letters that Paul wrote from prison. And the reason for his imprisonment was not because he had done something wrong, but because he was being obedient to Christ Jesus. He was a faithful steward of the mystery, and that got him in prison. And here comes maybe the most mind-blowing phrase in the whole 
passage. It's at the end of verse 1. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. That phrase, on behalf of you Gentiles, is what sends Paul on this God-inspired tangent. What does he mean when he says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles? Well, again, the book of Acts explains what he means. It helps if you know why Paul's in prison in the first place. Why was he imprisoned to be writing them this letter? Luke tells us the answer in Acts 21. I don't want you to turn there. I'm just going to summarize, but you can go read it later if you want, Acts 21 and 22. Here's the quick version, okay? Paul had this great desire because there was uh, great financial difficulty in Jerusalem. He had a desire to go and to be able to take a gift to the believers in Jerusalem. And so when he was traveling around at all these different churches, he would ask them to take up a collection that he could take back with him. And so Paul gets this collection to take to the believers in Jerusalem. And he goes there and he goes into the home of James. And so I want you to imagine this picture. There's Paul. <clears throat> Over there in the corner is, I don't know, maybe big bags of money that he's literally brought to help the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And they're standing there and James starts to tell Paul about basically the lies that people had been telling about him in the church in Jerusalem. There are people saying that you said this or that you said that. There are people saying that you have uh, denied that they need to read the law of Moses or that they shouldn't circumcise their children or anything like that. And Paul's saying, I haven't said any of that. All I've done is shown you people love. In fact, look right there at this big old bag of money that I brought because I love you and I came here to show my affection for you. And so James just says to Paul, you need to be careful. Maybe there are some steps we need to take to try to help you. And so Paul goes through this strenuous seven-day ritual of purification. He's trying to be very careful not to offend anyone. And then after that period's up, he goes into the temple. And when he gets into the temple, there are some people there who start to, some unbelievers there who start to stir up trouble about Paul. And what they had seen was they had seen a group of people with Paul. He wasn't traveling alone. He had a group of companions. And one of the companions that Paul had was a man named Trophimus. And Luke specifically tells us that he was an Ephesian. The people that Paul was writing this letter to probably knew Trophimus. And the people in the temple began to accuse Paul and say he's, he's defiled the temple because he brought a Gentile into the temple. Now Paul had not done that. They sort of leapt to wrong conclusions and, uh, and bore false witness about him. But long story short, they got worked up. A lynch mob is ready to, to kill Paul. They are trying to kill him, but they don't want to kill him in the temple, so they drag him outside of the temple. And they're going to they're gonna kill him outside the temple. Well, because they drag him outside the temple, the Romans are able to step in and they arrest Paul for his own safety. While Paul's in custody, he asks one of the officials, could I, could I speak to the crowd? I would like to give a defense. And the man allows him to. And so Paul stands up there on the steps and he begins to speak and give a defense. He begins to tell the story of his own conversion. He tells about the vision that he saw on the road to Damascus, about the voice that he heard from heaven. He tells about the blindness. He tells about going to the home of Ananias. Everyone's listening along. Luke doesn't say if they were what they were doing, but we're assuming that they're all paying attention until Paul gets to the part 
where he tells them what Jesus told him. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then this is what Luke says. Up to this word they listened. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Because he had the audacity to say that Jesus had told him to go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's what Paul means when he says here in verse 1, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you. I'm in prison because God called me to proclaim the gospel to you. And because I pursued that call not only with my words, but also with my actions. That, that gives you a whole new way of reading this whole letter and especially this passage. What I want you to see with me this morning is that God has called us to proclaim and to pursue the same thing. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be known, made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Three words in verse 10. Through the church. Not just through apostles, not just through Paul, not just through pastors, not just through missionaries. Through the church. God wants to display His wisdom through the church. And what specifically is it that He wants to display? He wants to display His wisdom in uniting all kinds of people to Himself through Christ. He wants to display His wisdom in that diverse, Christ-centered unity that is supposed to be found in the church when there is that diverse Christ-centered unity in the church, what it proclaims to the world is that Jesus is a Savior and a Redeemer for all kinds of sinners. And it doesn't just proclaim that to the world, it proclaims that to the universe. Notice he says in verse 10, "...so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." He's talking about angelic beings, demonic beings... Okay, he's talking about through the church, God is displaying his wisdom to Satan because Satan would like to say, oh, this is great, but Jesus is just this tribal guy that, that s some Jews seem to like, but a lot of them hated him and they killed him. And God says, no, I'm going to display my wisdom through the church when all kinds of people start being united to this Savior and Redeemer. It shows that the grace of God reaches to all kinds of sinners. It shows that the power of God is able to unite all kinds of sinners. It shows the wisdom of God that planned this diverse unity and accomplished it through His death and resurrection. So the application for us is at the same time really simple and really difficult. It's really easy to see and to say, but it's very difficult to do. The application is that as followers of Christ, we are called to pro proclaim and to pursue with our words and our deeds Christ-centered unity. Now, of course, the most obvious area that Paul has in mind here is 
race, and ethnicity. Racial conflict is not new, nor is it unique to our culture or to our generation. You see this over and over and over in the New Testament. It was a big deal. It caused lots of problems. This whole idea that there were supposed to be Jewish believers and Gentile believers who were all supposed to get along. What you see in the New Testament is that the solution to racial friction and conflict is never, well, let's just split up and we'll have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. It's never to separate based on ethnic identity, but to realize and to display a deeper and truer identity in Christ. When we segregate ourselves along racial lines, we're not just sinning against our neighbors, we're sinning against God because we're telling a lie about God. We're displaying something about Him that is not true. We're saying with our actions that being white or being black or being brown is more important than being in Christ. I was, I was deeply convicted this week as I was meditating on this, on the fact that Christ-centered unity across racial lines is not just something that the early church accepted. I'm, I'm thankful that largely, broadly speaking, the church here in America, especially in the South, has moved from rejection to acceptance of this. But what I was convicted about is that the early church did not just accept the, the possibility of, of this Christ-centered unity, it was something God commanded them to pursue. You, you hear that in Paul's conversion where God tells him to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, shouldn't God have just told Paul to be colorblind and just preach the gospel to everybody? God told him to go out and seek people who were not like him and preach the gospel to them. If that's racist, then God's racist, and He's not. So... We should accept it if it were to happen, but more than that, it's something we should positively pursue because we want God's grace, power, and wisdom to be more clearly displayed. So how does that work in reality? It means that if a black family started visiting our church, we should absolutely welcome them. And I want you to know that's something I pray for almost every week. I'm, I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I pray for that. I pray that God would move some black family in our community or, or some, you know, someone out there who's not in church and that He would put somebody from our church in their path. It may be me, it may be somebody else. I pray for that. So we should accept that. But more than that, what about if we see a black family at the baseball field or at the grocery store? Why not invite them? Because of who Jesus is, is for us, we should not only be okay with all kinds of sinners coming to Him, we should not only be okay with them being united to us, but we should positively pursue it with our words and our deeds. Now, let's take a step back. I, I said that racial, ethnic unity is at the forefront, it's the most obvious thing Paul's talking about here, but we could apply this to a whole host of other things. This is not the only way we can proclaim and pursue Christ-centered unity. For example, there is a lot of economic uh, diversity in this area. In fact, 
you could argue there's probably at least maybe within a few miles of, of this specific location, there's probably more economic diversity than ethnic diversity. Because of the gospel, rich people and poor people and everyone in between all have the same footing. The old saying, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's true. We should not only accept people who are not in our tax bracket, but we should pursue them in love. And by the way, that cuts both ways because the bias is just as easy. It's just as easy to be biased against someone who, ha who makes more money than you as it is to be biased against someone who makes less money than you. The, the, the bias is, well, they must not have done something right, and that's why they must have less money than me, or they must be doing something wrong or sneaky, and that must be why they make more money than me, right? The gospel says, no, we don't look at each other that way primarily. What is most true, what is number one, what is primary is, are they in Christ? That's the most important thing about anyone. And we could come up with endless ways to proclaim and pursue this Christ-centered unity. Some of them are about our backgrounds. So there's ethnicity, age, economic class, education level, and so on. Others are more about preferences, music style, traditions, and so on. Some are honestly just about personality and temperament. Some people we just have an easier time getting along with than others. But the church is meant to be a people who set aside every other common identity except Jesus. So, in other words, the church is meant to be a people where we say, um, what is most important about me and about you is that you're in Christ. And it doesn't matter how alike or unlike we are, regardless of that. It doesn't matter if we grew up in the same place, if we're in the same family, if we're in the same tax bracket, same education level, same color of skin, you name it. What's most important is we're in Christ, you're my brother or my sister in Christ. And the church is meant to be a people who set aside our preferences to display that Jesus is the center of all that we do. He's the reason we're united to one another. Colby and I were talking the other day about just preferences in church. And I said to him, I said, you know, if you ever found a church where you said everything there is exactly the way I would want it, then that's probably not a healthy situation because there should be a sense in which we're rubbing up against each other and there are certain kinds of music that you might like more than me and there's certain kind of music I might like more than you and there's certain traditions or things that I might like doing more than you and you might like doing more than me. If everything is exactly to my liking, then that's probably a sign that there's, there's not enough unity around Christ and there's too much unity around sort of superficial things. So the church ought to be a place where there are some people where from the outside the world says those people don't have any business being together except because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the church is meant to be a people who, as Paul says in Colossians, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. I want to end with a note of, of uh, both commendation and conviction. 
Um, in other words, I want to commend our church. I have been very thankful for your openness uh, over the years I've been here, at least the years that I've been able to observe your openness to people who uh, may not have the same skin tone or may not uh, come from the same education level as you or the same tax bracket as you. So I want to commend you in that. Uh, I want you to say, I want to say um, this is not one of those sermons that arises uh, because I see some glaring hole. Um, but there is also a word of conviction here that we all need to grow in this. I'm always deeply convicted by even the Apostle Peter in Acts 10 when uh, he had a vision three times from God that told him, take up and eat, meaning to eat unclean food. It was about identifying with Gentiles. God Himself had to give Peter a vision three times to get him over some of his uh, uh, unease with, with reaching out to people who weren't like him. And so I'm very aware that I'm not God. Uh, and so this is one of those processes that for all of us takes a long time. It's why I occasionally preach about it. Um, but we also are, are as prone to falling back into it, aren't we? The same Peter who eventually came around in Acts 10, later on the Apostle Paul had to go and confront him. He talks about that in Galatians 2. He said, I went and confronted Peter to his face because he refused to associate with the Gentiles. He was afraid of some of the other Jews in the church and he refused to associate with the Gentiles. So this is one of those things where we're never there. One day we will be, Lord willing. One day we will... For those of us who've trusted in Christ, we will be gathered, gathered around the throne of the Lamb with a multitude from every tribe and nation and people and language, and we will rejoice in that. Um, but for now, we, we need to continue growing and uh, growing in Christ likeness and uh, in our desire to see other people in our community, uh, no matter how alike or unlike us they are, come to Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, how it does challenge and convict us at times. Um, Spirit of God, I pray that you would uh, take the words that I've said and that you would uh, filter them for uh, any, um, any error that I might have spoken. Lord, that you would uh, help these words to be taken in love, knowing that they were intended in love. And God, uh, Lord, that all of us, including myself, would be under the, the loving chastisement of your word. God, we're thankful that you, your desire for us is, is not just to, um, to unite us to your Son, but also to, to make us your children. And part of that means being conformed to His likeness. And so, Lord, we know that that's a lifelong process. It only ends when we see Him face to face. And so, Lord, this room is filled with people who haven't arrived yet. It's filled with people who aren't there yet, who are not as holy as we ought to be, nor as holy as we should be or would like to be. And so, God, help us to have an earnest desire to, to walk in holiness, to grow in our likeness to Jesus, Lord, in every, in every way. And, God, more than anything, that we would indeed see our identity in Christ as the most important thing about us, more true than our abilities, more true than our background, more true than... Um, what we think of ourselves is what you think of us. 
And Lord, you have said that uh, you will not put to shame anyone who trusts in Jesus. And so, Lord, now as we come to a time of invitation and response, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us, help us to see those blind spots in our life. God, that we would be convicted by them and, and desire to change uh, for your glory. And Lord, that you would help us to lift our eyes and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. God, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.